welcome everyone. Welcome to the podcast, the next page designed to advance the conversation on multilateralism. Today in the studio, I have with me Dr. Anna Grichtin, who's a Swiss national, and she's an architect, urbanist, and musician, and is a doctor of design in urbanism from Harvard University. She has practiced as an architect, an urbanist, and she has taught as a professor and fellow at the universities of Geneva, Harvard, MIT, and Qatar. Anna is currently a senior research fellow at the University of Vermont Institute of Environmental Diplomacy and Security and a lead research consultant for Qatar University. Anna, welcome on the next page. Thank you very much uh, for inviting me here. It's fantastic to have you here. And one of the reasons we wanted you here is because you have a special research angle and a special relationship, I say so, with borders and walls. And of course, as internationalists, we are massively interested in borders. And in 2012, you wrote this book, Stitching the Buffet Zone, that I have here with me. And the book looks at borders in a totally different, novel way, at least for me. And it looks at walls as well. And there is this spread image of the historical uh, you know, development of, of borders and walls in the world that I found uh, amazing. And the way you look at this is, appears very unconventional to me. And that's one of the reasons why we invited you on our podcast. But before we go into the subject of, of, of this podcast that is released on 9 November, which is a massively historical date, and we'll talk about that in a second. Why don't you tell our audience a little bit about you and how you came to, became, to, to be so passionate about borders and walls? I'm originally from the Valais, from a village on the Rochtigraben, which, as you know, is what separates the Germanic and French-speaking Switzerland. So I would say my origins are already on this, in this border zone. I went on to live in Ireland, and I went to school there, and we lived in a town called Drogheda, which is just beside the border with Northern Ireland. So when I was there, it was my teenage years, uh, already I became familiar with the, this separation uh, between Northern and Southern Ireland. And uh, then the third thing is that my mother is uh, from Berlin and I first visited Berlin in 1987 and I was visiting my grandmother there. When I came back, I was still studying and uh, I wanted to study the Berlin Wall. And I had a very visionary professor, Professor Riccardo Mariani from Florence. And he made me love cities and their histories. And he taught me how to read histories. So when I told him about the Berlin Wall in 1987, he said to me, I don't want to just hear the history of this wall. I want you to design the framework for a competition when this wall is going to fall. So this was in 1987. So I made a short uh, research and presentation in 1987. Then in 1989, I decided I would do a, a diploma on the Berlin Wall, and it was thanks to Professor Mariani. I then went on after my diploma on the Berlin Wall, I did a master's in urban planning and design. And there I worked with another Italian professor, Jairo Deghini, and he was a philosopher. So I had a more sort of philosophical approach to borders. And I started to look at the questions of memory and how a border also in the future becomes a landscape of memory. Finally, when I went to Harvard to do my PhD, I worked with Professor Joan Busquets. 
And he's, he was uh, working in Barcelona. He was an architect and urbanist in Barcelona, in the transformation of Barcelona. And he was a professor and also an urban designer. And he sort of taught me the methodological approach of case studies, looking at other divided cities, and looking also and doing this research in a very applied way. So I was very fortunate to have these three great professors who guided my work in very different, in very different ways. I, I'm also an artist. I was actually destined to go to art school in Ireland, uh, but then I came back to Geneva and I decided to study architecture. So as my work developed in the border zones, I started to not only look at divided cities uh, like Berlin, but to start to look at buffer zones, so to look at a much larger landscape. Um, and this led me to start to look at peace parks and to discover this, this, um, this whole subject of peace parks and to start attending conferences and doing research. And this brought me to this idea of the environmental diplomacy, eco-diplomacy. So that led me there. And finally, into the social ecologies um, through this work. So I would say that's a little bit my, my path from art architecture to social ecologies. And to our audience, stay put, because we're going to talk about this concept of social ecology a little bit down the line on, in this podcast. And I think it's very, it's very important to, to talk about social ecology at this point. But before we get there, today is 9 November. So 9 November 1989 is one of the most memorable dates in contemporary history, is the day the wall came down. Anna, where were you on that day? I was actually in Berlin the day that the wall fell. I was, I had been there for one week. I had decided to, to undertake my architect's diploma on the Berlin Wall and to design a project for the Berlin Wall. Now, before then, obviously, people had been telling me that, you know, this was a bit of a crazy idea. It was going to be complicated, uh, etc., uh, however, I had already in June 1989, there had been already an opening of the border fence between Hungary and Austria. So there was in my mind this idea that, you know, eventually um, the war would fall. And obviously we were in this whole period of perestroika uh, with Gorbachev. So despite maybe people's misgivings about my, my ambitious project, I, I went to Berlin and I had spent a week gathering uh, data and information. And the evening when I was about to leave Berlin, at that time, we didn't have EasyJet. I was traveling by train, by night train from Geneva to Berlin. And the evening when I stepped on the train, they had just made the announcement that the borders were being opened. So I stepped on the train and it was quite an incredible train journey because all through East Germany, uh, people were hearing the news and getting on and off the trains. And so it was one great celebration going through East Germany. Uh, and when I reached Geneva, I actually just uh, took a video camera and got back on the next train and went straight back to Berlin and then I started filming and you know I was able obviously to we were able to cross over and to visit the checkpoints my uncle who was living there took me you know took me around and we visited all the different checkpoints and I did a lot of filming which I then used to make a film for my diploma called Berlin and the Walls of History. 
But that's an incredible personal experience. But in this particular case of you, your person, it became woven into your professional ambitions and your and your research. How did that affect you as a professional? So this, um, yes, this experience of being in Berlin, uh, this was the beginning of my research. So I was uh, very fortunate because during the whole year that the wall was falling and Berlin was being re reunified because it took one year before the two Berlins were, were reunified on the 6th of October 1990, I was developing this project um, and really following very closely the, the transformation. So I think that was really a great uh, advantage for me because I really uh, had the time to be able to deeply uh, follow this, this process. So I, I'd like to just cite here Robert Schumann, who said that borders are the scars of history. And he was one of the founders of the European Union. So through this, through this work, I started to look not only at Berlin, but obviously at other, you know, other borders through history that had, had materialized and dematerialized across history. And I started to really develop this idea of the territorial scar. Uh, because in, in the end, all borders do become obsolete if we look at the long view of history. So, so that became really the center of my research is what, what will become of our borders today and, you know, what will be our borders of tomorrow. So in a way, it's, it's this, this link also to a territory and its memory. And that's what I learned with my professor is that when these borders fall, in, in a way, we shouldn't just erase this line or this border but it is it is a scar in in history and my idea when i when i developed stitching the buffer zone and my doctor of design was this idea of how we could go from a deep wound to a beautiful scar so so this idea of the beautiful scar is is that it's the border zone actually for whether it's a city or a, a larger territory is an opportunity. We see that when cities demolish their fortifications, whether we're looking at Geneva, um, you know, this space was a space where we could build the new institutions for the future city. In the case of Berlin, the wall ran right through the city. So there was a, a very large opportunity on the one hand to develop public spaces or even ecological reserves. And on the other hand, to create spaces of memory, spaces to commemorate the victims, spaces to talk about the wall, etc. So it's also really looking at the opportunity that is within this, uh, this buffer zone. My experience was when I was developing my master's in, in urban design, I went back to Berlin. Uh, this was a few years later, and I started to look at what had happened to the Berlin Wall. And there I saw that in the center of the, the city, where, of course, the forces of real estate are, are, you know, where the biggest pressure of real estate in the Potsdamer Platz is, the wall had been erased because the developers had gone so fast that there was there was no no wall left and the wall was not just one wall it was a space it was a no man's land between two walls so what did the city of berlin do they first painted a red line because the tourists were all looking for the wall and later on what they did is they put a copper line on on the ground and of course this was a good gesture but for me the wall was not a line it was actually a space and I always feel that they, you know, they could have 
really done something maybe more creative and serving more the history of the city than just giving over the space to the developers. Fortunately, there are a few examples in Berlin, for example, the Mauer Park. And this is very interesting because it was actually an initiative by the inhabitants on both sides of the wall, on the east, Prenzlauer uh, Berg, and on the west in Wedding. And this was an area in Berlin which was very densely urbanized and they had no public spaces. So the people from both sides came together and they said, we want this part of the wall to become a park. So this became the Mauer Park, and it's a really uh, fantastic space today, which is used both by um, the communities on either side. There's also flea markets, performances, and also tourists go there. So this is a very, um, for me, a very a successful example of how it's also the people who make the spaces and the projects, and it's not always a top-down uh, initiative. And that's also, I think, what brought me to the social ecologies is that it's not just uh, the politicians or the institutions that design the spaces, but it's also the people. And also this link to ecology, of course, um, that, that it's also people and ecology are very closely linked. Before we go to social ecology, I wanted to ask you, you, you talked a lot about the Berlin Wall. Of course, there is also the border between the two Germanys and what is left of it, culturally and ecologically speaking. But my question to you was, you have traveled all over the world. What about other experiences? Did you find commonalities between what you observed in Berlin during and after the fall of the wall and other situations in other continents, in other nations, where there were walls and borders and walls that came up, walls then went down. What was your experience in other parts of the world? So thank you for this question. I visited uh, the Korean demilitarized zone and I've also, as, as you've mentioned, worked on, on Cyprus. The reason I also went to these border zones is um, I wanted to go to places where there was still a border and to apply what I had learned from Berlin to these places and to say that, in fact, we need to have a project before there is a solution. Um, because once there is a solution, generally the forces of real estate go very quickly. So that was my motivation for going to Korea and Cyprus. What I learned not only from Berlin, but also from Germany, was once again a project that had been initiated by the people. This is the project of the German Greenbelt, and it's, it's actually a very amazing project which, which runs all along the former Iron Curtain in Germany. What's really interesting is that it was initiated by bird watchers. Um, they used to come because these border zones, which is what interests me particularly about the border zones, is that while they're very negative spaces, there are also spaces where there is no development. Often there are mines, which obviously mines are, are not, uh, not good, but they often protect the environment. They protect nature. So these bird watchers would be along the border because there were a lot of birds here. And we find that in, in a lot of border zones, whether it's Korea or Cyprus, there's a lot of biodiversity that flourishes. And so the bird watchers got together and said, we really want to keep this space of the um, of the Iron Curtain, and they worked with 
an organization, an NGO called Green Bund. Uh, it's a nature organization. And then they created the Grün, Grün Band. This was really interesting. It was the longest study of uh, biodiversity in, um, in Germany. Uh, they actually studied all the biodiversity in the whole Iron Curtain, and they preserved the whole green belt. And so this is a really, I think, a really incredible example. And obviously we can study it. It's, it's a good example because there's, you know, how did they manage to um, get the land, acquire the land? You know, there's a whole process that's actually been realized. And I think this is a great inspiration for places like Cyprus or the, you know, Korea or other places that have borders. Um, because the idea is also that every border has a patrol path. And Keeping that patrol path is sort of the, the, the string of the necklace. It's really the backbone of any border. And it's something that we can preserve. And it becomes, it becomes a, a trail, a nature trail that you can cycle along. Um, so really, it's this backbone that needs to be preserved. And along this backbone, then you can preserve the core areas, the pockets of memory, of biodiversity. Um, so I would say that was really the, the biggest thing I learned from Berlin and from Germany and that I think can be applied in Korea and, and in Cyprus. I've, I've visited both places. Also, what interested me there is the fact that while politically it's obviously impossible, you know, to have formal collaborations often, the scientists and artists often do collaborate across borders. Um, so the people who are interested in biodiversity, in nature, or artists who are also looking, you know, to the future, because artists are sort of um, always, you know, they, they, they usually they look to the past, but they also you know, very much looking into the future, into the new paradigms. So, so that really interested me because in these places I was in contact with artists and scientists and um, we were always looking at what, you know, what is the ecology that's emerged in these places and then what is the future potential. Um, and the, the, the biggest, I think, in, the most important role we have, whether it's scientists, artists or myself as planners, is making people aware of uh, the value of these spaces um, for the future development. And this is the right moment, I think, to introduce these concepts that you have written about environmental diplomacy and social ecology. I don't know in which order, but uh, can you tell our audience a little bit about these two concepts? I think these approaches are to find ways to go beyond looking at borders as hard borders, you know, going beyond rigid politics and finding more flexible, flexible ways of looking at the border and also different approaches to diplomacy and in which we take into account what's developed on the ground. We look at the territory, the ecology and the people. So social ecology, this was quite a challenging project that was proposed to me by Professor Salim Ali, who wrote a book on peace parks and whom I collaborated with um, on an atlas of ecological cooperation. We had a project called A Digital and Dynamic Atlas of Ecological Cooperation. It was a tool really for people to be able to work across borders with, with maps, with digital technologies, while they couldn't exactly meet. So after seeing um, my work, he proposed uh, to me to write the book on, on social ecology because he saw my work as being really integrated into this, maybe this new way of, of looking at, uh, at ecology. 
So uh, it was quite a challenge because uh, while I was doing this in maybe an intuitive and practical way, then I had to sort of start to theorize uh, this work. And I discovered that uh, Bookshin first theorized social ecology in the Anglo-Saxon world. And he declared that the real battleground on which the ecological future of the planet would be decided would be a social one. So he underscored the way that human beings deal with each other as social beings, saying that it's crucial to addressing the ecological crisis. Now, I would believe that if we see what's happening today, um, we could say that really he's, he's right. When we look at all the climate actions, the climate strikes taking place, um, we can see that there is a new vision of the planet and its inhabitants and that we are going also beyond the anthropocentric view. So I think this idea of social ecology is going beyond the anthropocentric view where we are at the center of, you know, of the planet and of nature. So the social ecologies was also linked to uh, the French philosophers Deleuze and Guattari. And it was also linked to this idea of going, you know, beyond dualistic uh, thinking or binaries and looking at different relationships and, and structures. So they use this idea of a rhizome. So it's, it's, it means that structures are more horizontal. And I think if we see a lot of initiatives, whether they're the ones that I spoke about in the borders, how, you know, the green belt emerged, uh, you know, these are more horizontal and rhizomatic relationships. If we look at the climate strikes going on today and Greta Thunberg, we can see that actually there's a whole kind of organization that's happening, which I think also resonates with this, with this idea of uh, Deleuze and Guattari. So, the definition of social ecology is an emerging concept that's situated in the field of critical social theory and new integrative sciences. It addresses the complex and interrelated relationship between nature and society, and it offers a perspective on how environmental issues are embedded in a social context. Okay, so you would say with that definition, we could sort of go into a different approach to diplomacy. Is, is that definition useful for what you call environmental diplomacy? Yes, I think it's, it's, a, it's a very good framework to address environmental diplomacy or eco-diplomacy. Uh, These are also linked to what we, we can name as multi-track diplomacy, or bottoms-up peace building. And they are ways to uh, contribute to conflict resolution and peace building uh, between nations or communities. So the idea is that it also looks at the web of interconnected activities, individuals, institutions, and communities that operate together for a common goal, which is world peace, but is also founded and grounded in the environment. So in this case of the subject I'm looking at, which is buffer zones, um, then we're really specifically looking at the environment that's emerging in these buffer zones or in these areas of conflict. We also talk about science diplomacy. Um, it's a critical aspect of science and international relations that demonstrates how science can build bridges between societies where official relationships may be strained 
So I'm also particularly interested in this because I'm working in an academic environment. I find it's also an important uh, definition uh, because I've also worked with a lot of academics in in Korea or in Cyprus and all around the world. And I'm affiliated with the Institute of Environmental Diplomacy and Security. Would you say that communities that are separated by buffer zones or borders or hard walls have a different sensibility for environmental matters? They are more cognizant of the importance of preserving certain um, environmental assets they have? That's a, a good question. I think that often the communities actually on both sides of the border are more similar uh, than we imagine because the borders are often very artificial. So culturally, the people are often you know, quite, quite similar. As regards the environment, I think it's, uh, I'm not sure if they're more sensitive, but it is that uh, on both sides of the wall, you will find nature lovers, you will find bird lovers, you will find people who want to protect the turtles, as in Cyprus there are turtles. In the Korean demilitarized zone, there's a project which is published in my book on social ecologies about cranes and uh, the cranes' conservation, because these are migratory birds that land in the DMZ. And these birds are actually also very symbolic culturally for the Koreans. So I think you find these communities on, on both sides and it's actually these links and they, they talk to each other e easily because their love of birds is more important than the conflict. And I think, I think that's really the power, the power of nature. And I think there was one project that I developed and it was an art science workshop where I brought in some uh, artists and scientists from the north and south of Cyprus and also uh, some uh, international experts. And the outcome of this workshop was a project called Flyways, Pathways and Driftways. And it was really this idea of how these flagship species, whether it's cranes or it can be turtles or storks, can become sort of elements and, and drivers that bring people together across borders. And uh, also we see because these species actually don't recognize the borders. They're great flagships for, for these initiatives. Where our listeners can go to learn more about social ecology, environmental diplomacy, you have, of course, researched a lot in these fields. Is there anything that you would suggest in terms of resources, books, websites, including your own books, of course? It is an emerging field of, uh, of research. So there, there are a lot of books. If you want to find uh, some references, you can look at my book, which is The Social Ecologies of Border Landscapes, which is edited by myself and Professor Michel Zebisch-Knolz. And in this book, you will find, first of all, exa concrete examples of social ecologies all around the world, but you will also find a lot of references. I think otherwise, today we have the internet and you can also find a lot of references to this. Of all your travels, this will be my last question, of all your travels, which one was the border or the wall, existing or fell down, that impressed you the most? Berlin, obviously, because the first time I saw it, that's when I knew I, I was struck. And I, this became my passion, obsession with walls. On the other hand, 
when I was in the Korean demilitarized zone with Professor Kwigon Kim, who is Professor Emeritus at Seoul National University, we had been able to enter in the civilian control zone because it's not very easy to access. And we were driving along and we stopped and we saw some cranes that had just uh, arrived in these rice fields. And they started to do a dance. And uh, this was just uh, absolutely amazing. And I have it, a short piece on video filmed. And Professor Kim told me, he said, you're really, really lucky because normally they don't come this early. And when I told this story, and I actually presented it in a conference a few days later in Korea, people told me that I was very fortunate to have seen this. So I, I would say this was a really exceptional moment um, in my visit of borders. Dr. Anna Grichting, thank you so much for being our guest on our podcast. Thank you very much.